masks, because they are such everyday objects of use, uh, they also became a canvas on which people express their political ideas and proclivities. If you believe that there is always a material base to culture in society, then yes, of course. The way how people deal and think about the material objects that surround them, of course, highlights social issues. Science Social, a podcast series about how science, history and society connect with and add to the big questions that we all have today. This show is created by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. My name is Stephanie Hood and in each episode I'm joined by guests from our institute to talk about their research, their big questions and some of the weird and wonderful experiences they've had along the way. I'm here today with Caroline Roda and Marianne Stigalska to talk about the Masquerade a project that they've started during the COVID-19 crisis, looking at the probably the most iconic artifact of the pandemic, the face mask. So the project looks at the material, technological and cultural aspects of the face mask through essays and through artwork. So, um, oh, yeah, I wanted to know what your favourite masks were, either as part of the project or out and about. Um, Mariana. I can start with that with mine. So I think the the most fascinating mask I've seen is uh, these masks that um, were designed for horses during World War One. So there are these kind of gas masks uh, for a horse head, horse snout for protecting from from military gases. And I think it's a very weird object, and you can see it sometimes in some military museums. I was totally not expecting that. I was thinking like panda face masks or something. <laughs> no, that would be mine. <laughs> Caroline, you look like a fan of a panda face mask. I can offer the panda face mask. Uh, well, you mean like face mask with a panda on? Not with a panda, but with Donald Duck. So I think that the mask, in some ways fascinating because it brought really sort of to material life this idea of transforming material is the first mask my mom made for for me and she made it from her children's bed linen so the ones that she actually had as a baby um from a like with donald duck and mickey mouse print and you know thinking that this material used to be her linen and that she kept it and she's not someone who keeps a lot of things but that that piece of cloth was still there and then she made face, face masks from it to you know protect her adult daughter in this crisis was just something that I thought was really interesting how um, also quite often um, textiles are inherited and and now I have the Donald Duck face mask. I'm a big Donald Duck fan as well. So um, I, I wore it proudly and I was always waiting that people would say, oh my God, wow, I love your Donald Duck mask. And I think I was one of the first ones with a comic mask, but nobody ever said anything that was a bit disappointing. You know, if I'd seen it, I would have complimented you on your Donald Duck mask. Thank you. <laughs> Just swing by my office sometime with it on and I'll give you a thumbs up. <laughs> So what's the story behind the project name Masquerade? What meaning does it have for you? Well, initially the project was called Masks of Desire. There was a time when 
masks of all sorts were still short in supply. And I said, oh, this is all what we desire now, our masks. And once the project evolved and time went on, I realized it's actually a bit more proje- a bit more complicated. Not everyone necessarily desires the mask. It's also an object of fear. Our uh, team member, JD, suggested this title then, The Masquerade, because it now reflects the... But we have an array of stories and an array of different uh, perspectives um, about the mask as an object and that there is actually something behind, hiding behind the material that we want to unmask. And I think another important part of it was that we had, early on, we had artists on board and they were working on something that could be more closer to a masquerade because they were producing items, uh, material masks. Uh, and we have, of course, on the webpage visualizations of those objects. But it was really important for us to have in a masquerade to have an actual mask produced for us. And that happened. So on the landing page of the masquerade, you have a collage of various uh, people or characters wearing masks. Where did this come from? Where did the idea come from? Can you tell me more? Yeah, so this is a direct uh, contribution from one of our collaborators, uh, Regina Maria Müller, who's an artist based in Berlin. In this collage, you can see images from different time periods, from different cultures and etc. kind of being together in this um, bricolage. Manner. A collage is, of course, also consists of layers. And many of the masks, particularly the respirators, consist of different layers of fabric. And so the collage also represents that layering of both meanings and material. It could, we could say that this is a visual representation of our take on the mask and the project because from the very beginning we wanted to show the many layers of the mask opening uh, but at the same time I, I think it shows how the collaboration was also a multi-layered process for us. How did that work, actually collaborating during COVID-19? Because the pandemic's changed working practices for many of us around the world, including ac- academics. Right. So we pretty quickly decided that we're going to look at different kinds of um, software that will enable us different kinds of work to do collaboratively online. So we settled on Slack that would enable us communication and then Notion where we shared our ideas. I actually think that it worked particularly well because um, meeting online is a... um, if you're available at home, the barrier is very low in some ways. And that also helped us to include scholars who were based, for example, in Canada, without making them feel less member of a team because they weren't physically around. Yeah, and I think there were also... Uh those meetings were about the project, but the, everybody was also reporting what's going on, uh, you know, where they're based. So we were asking colleagues in Stockholm, how is it there? Because at that time in Berlin, we were under complete strict lockdown, whereas in Stockholm, you could go to cafes and somebody was actually visiting us from a cafe and we were all like, oh, wow, <laughs> we can still do that there. And that was um, definitely an interesting experience. I definitely also felt that I missed just walking into someone's office 
and saying, hey, could you help out with this? But it was also, I think, very important for us in terms of mental health to have to see each other and actually work on something that was related to the crisis where we felt we can contribute something and there is actually something that our discipline can answer or observe. So it was also practice for all of us to see how can we, with the questions we usually deal, maybe in the context of other projects, how can we deliver some answers or maybe just some good questions or some just good ideas. I guess we were delivering more ideas and ways to think about things and then in fact answers. Your department, department three, is called Artifacts, Action and Knowledge and focuses specifically on materiality. But what does that mean on a, on a bigger scale in history and sociology of science, but also when, when you're looking at the mask, what does that mean about, what do you mean when you talk about the materiality of the mask? Yeah, so for uh, we come from a perspective where knowledge making doesn't happen in just like some void space or abstract reality but like all aspects of knowledge making have their material dimensions maybe traditionally history is perceived to be dealing with uh, texts and archives and, t and narratives, but also there's this huge material turn in humanities and social sciences. And there are certain aspects of the historical discipline, especially history of science, that pays more attention to the material cultures and the materiality of objects that can tell us something about the world. What kind of example can you give us from everyday life? I'm thinking of Christmas trees, I don't know why. But a Christmas tree is really, you know, if you think this most simple term that celebrations are a part of your culture and you say, well, I have to have a Christmas tree, maybe because I don't believe in Santa Claus or I'm not religious, but the Christmas tree is just part of my culture. I think that's, you know, an item where even if you feel just remotely related to a certain kind of tradition. There is an item that needs to be there. It needs to be treated in a certain way. It has a specific spot. Then it has a very universal appeal of the tree as, as such across human cultures. Um, and it has a material life in that it needs to be grown organically and cut and then just being disposed of. I actually saw the last Christmas tree in Berlin a few weeks ago, just in a bush. So there's an environmental history to the tree. And yeah, you know, you could go on and on about the tree. <laughs> yeah. Also somehow about the fact that we're talking about Christmas in like 30 degree heat. <laughs> in August. Um, and I guess if I can add something, coming from that um, kind of perspective, every object literally could be turned into a heuristic tool to understand the reality and culture around it. So for us, deciding that a mask will be such an object, also because it became a very significant object at the time, what it could tell us about the processes, the changes. And of course, as every object that is material and concrete, it has its own history. So we were interested in delving into what those histories are, how people use it differently in different places uh, and how it's distributed differently and also really what, what it's made of. Something that the, your Masquerade project also teaches us is that the mask really has a history. I mean, this is probably a mean question, but can you give me a short history of the mask? Just a run through. 
I would say if we talk about the mask, the mask is, of course, one of the oldest or like a staple item in human cultures. So um, there are certain functions that some masks have uh, in different contexts and lots of them are objects that aid transformation in some way from life to death or transforming to someone else or something else on stage, for example. What we're particularly interested in are masks that protect with protective function. They're particle respirators, lots of them. So we have, that's also why in the beginning I was interested in this um, threefold, the, the basically three materials meet each other. It's, it's the body and then it's the mask as a barrier and then there's something else um, that should not enter your body. There's so many different masks that we're talking about because there's a simple surgical face mask, but there's also N95 uh, respirator, which is a bit of a different item, protective item. And there's uh, visors and different kinds of masks. So they all have their separate histories. But also what Caroline was saying about historical circumstances that make wearing masks a pattern in different societies visible. Uh common trope that has been been popular since the start of the crisis is this idea that Asian cultures already wear masks and hence they might have been better protective or they have these uh, higher levels of hygiene and that also of course uh you know, what is Asia? Every Asian country is such, and culture also has different histories of how masks are used. You can't definitely not put Japanese and, and Chinese and South Koreans into just one pot and say, oh, all Asian wear masks. South Koreans, for example, um, started wearing masks to protect themselves um, against pollution. So environmental pollution is actually one of the main reasons, uh, which is also actually related to the origins of the respirator, because initially they were really there to protect you from dusk. And their histories are in the history of mining and um, workers' protection. Um, and there's, of course, also the much shorter history of uh, of SARS, uh, where those masks come up then. So this is really contemporary history and from country to country different. And that's also our contribution to show these differences. We've seen on your Masquerade project that masks have become connected to other social issues uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. Could you expand and tell me a bit more about a couple of cases that you've seen? Um, we do have a pre-corona project featured on our project website in form of an interview with a Vietnamese artist who created a also protest project um, using face mask and printing fish on them, fish that died during an environmental um, an environmental crisis in Vietnam. And there the face mask also stood for we won't be silenced. Uh, and this idea that a face mask can silence you, but also empowers you. And in some really interesting, weird ways is copied by all sorts of political and social groups. Um, another interesting, I think, case is CS case where the mask became so politicized. Um, there are so many cases where people wearing masks were asked, oh, are you Democrats? It becomes a political party statement. All of a sudden, this um, the, the object of protection 
and also related to we saw that in Germany too to violence and um, anger so it is an object that in some ways the power and truth seeking uh, forces of all sides try to co-opt and really imprint their own meaning to it to a very physical object and I think this is where the power of material cult culture also really shows Uh, the example that comes to my mind immediately is actually something that's happening right now in Poland where there's a big um, wave of, of homophobic laws and homophobia at the moment. And um, rainbow has become a huge symbol of resistance and of uh, fighting for tolerance and freedom. And people who wear masks with rainbow are just communicating something very important to the others. They're also kind of brave because you can get into trouble for that. But for example, when the recent president, the president was sworn in the parliament, uh, several MPs from the left party decided to protest. Uh, the, the, some of them were wearing rainbow masks and others were wearing clothes that formed a rainbow when they were sitting in their seats. So this kind of simple colors on your mask can communicate so much in a very specific social situations and context. Gender actually is one of the other many the themes that the mask touches. So in your article you ask, would a respirator modelled on a female body look or function differently? Can you observe differences in how masks look or work differently for men and women? So for example in fashion or medicine? Uh, this was like a speculative question, of course, because uh, they seem to be just the same. So the standard masks that are used by professionals, by medical professionals, they actually look really the same. There's, of course, different sizing in masks, but uh, the look of it is almost uniform. But then we do put masks on different bodies and differently gendered bodies. And there is there has been done some research on mask wearing of the N95 respirator by pregnant women and whether making it more comfortable for for women who are pregnant would kind of lead to making a more comfortable mask for everyone. So that could be something that could benefit uh, everybody, actually, if we took into consideration certain gender differences in how masks are being fit. Because with respirators, especially, the most important thing is a proper fit of the, of the mask around the face. But that kind of leads us to also thinking about whether gender at all matters with such a simple object that says something that attaches to your face. And maybe that we don't uh, need to think about gender at all. And maybe uh, masks should be just uh, adjusted to different bodies, like differently shaped bodies and etc. And that for sure can, can be more visible when, when we get out of the realm of the professional masks and to the masks that are DIY or designed by, by fashion designers. Uh, but also, for example, it makes me think of the masks that have a clear window where your mouth is. And this way they allow you to communicate emotions still while wearing a mask. Uh, but at the same time, they, they are very important for people uh, with hearing disparities that they can actually look at mouth and, and read your lips if, they need, if people need to do that. So that's, those are important ways that masks are modified along lines of, of differences and how our bodies are different and our lives are. Kind of makes me want to expand a bit more on the ability disability 
Yeah. So I also find this when I, I have really bad eyesight, I'm like minus eight. And when I don't wear my glasses, I really struggle to understand what people are saying. Oh, interesting. Even, and it's, but that's weird, right? Because I still listen to podcasts. I still listen to audiobooks. I don't have a problem understanding those. But I think if anything, then that just highlights something that we see in, um, that I, I also hear a lot about since the COVID-19 pandemic started of the, the new inequalities that have come about, but also the ways that existing inequalities have been strengthened by aspects of COVID-19, whether it's uh, work, culture, or people with children, or people with certain disabilities. Actually, today I worked with someone and she works with transplants and she cannot, she like, with she needs to see she doesn't read from the lips but she needs still to see what is going on in your face and she you basically mean like expressing emotions i wasn't sure she said um she needs her transplants in combination she needs to see you and hear you to actually be able to process that are there any other examples of of that you found in the masquerade project of how these kind of structural inequalities are, have been deepened by COVID-19? Specific examples that you've seen? One thing that we still would like to explore and I would invite any author writing about that is about um, mask and race. And depending on your cultural context, um, there have been other outlets has been written about the problems of uh, black Americans being able to wear a mask because when you do cover up your face and you walk into a store, the chance that you're going to be shot or harassed or the police being called to you is pretty high. So in that sense, um, the... Um, legitimacy or the ability to cover up and not show your face is a privilege. It's a privilege that not everyone has. Um, it is also, there is definitely there are community programs to help people to get access to masks if they can't afford them. So for example, in Berlin, the Bezirks um, Verwaltungen were giving out masks for people with low income. I think they did not ask them to prove low income because even the community mask is not necessarily a cheap item. They started off with, you know, 10 euros when you go to a tailor and buy a mask. You need several because you, you have to change them off and you have to wash them frequently. Um, prices are going down, but even the surgical mask in the beginning, if you bought like a single one at a drugstore and those are single use item were four euros and that is actual money so there is a financial aspect to the crisis beyond just losing your job but actually being able to afford protective gear what in your opinion can we learn from that about the mask about the crisis and about ourselves uh, definitely a mask is such an object that became super close to our body uh, and it became almost like a, a, a personal and intimate object that we, we carry along and we have to make peace with and, and use and learn how to use it. I think that one contribution historians of science, I think, can uh, have in these times is to communicate to people to keep their minds open about both the objects and the ways how they think knowledge is produced about these objects and what these objects do with us and for us and what we do with these objects. Um, 
but understanding how complicated it sometimes is to reach um, a level of certainty about objects and how we should live with them. I think carrying that kind of knowledge would maybe allow people to also cut some slack. And that kind of tolerance and openness, I think that is hopefully something we can communicate with this project. So where do you see the next project going? What are your next steps, do you think? You can check our website at www.demasquerade.net and we are still uploading new uh, essays that are incoming. And we are also open um, to proposals and suggestions. So if anyone would like to feel like um, suggesting, pitching us an idea, please contact us. And that goes to scholars, but also artists um, and professionals. This is it for today. If you like what you just heard, we'd love your support. Click the subscribe button, recommend us to your friends and colleagues, or give us a thumbs up in your favorite podcast app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. Science Social is produced by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. Music by Poddington Bear, then I'm the host, Stephanie Hood. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at, at MPIWG. And most of all, thanks for listening.